I'm sure he was a trustworthy guy, but that market was too concentrated for me in a sense, and, and luckily competition has evolved in a deregulated marketplace to address it. Another, um, another te way technology has changed the way things are delivered is music and file sharing, and, and uh, we heard about it with the Napster, uh, the Napster deal. What basically, um, uh, Wayne, is file sharing, and where does it? What happened with Napster, and what's happening now? Well, I'll, I'll put it very quickly. We used to record our music onto cassette tapes and uh, and carry those around and trade them, but things have really changed. You can obviously now uh, make copies of music off of the internet. You can download it from file sharing, what are called peer-to-peer -peer file trading networks. Kazaa is an example, uh, is a key example of that now. You can download music, but not only that, once you download it, it's available for the world, basically, in your shared folder. So, and that's not just music. That's the, the movies are coming. Anything that can be You're exactly right. On a peer-to-peer -peer network, you can download uh, music, computer software, games, computer games that people play are being shared, the Tony Hawk games. Anything like that is available uh, for free. Um, and movies, of course. Hollywood is uh, not at the crisis stage that the record companies are at yet. It takes a long time still to download a movie, even over a broadband connection. So they're not at the crisis stage. They're trying to resolve the issue before it gets to the point where it has with the record companies. Record companies have tried to stop file sharing. They shut down Napster, of course. They succeeded in doing that. I think to the extent that was an infringing uh, technology, you can you can t you can have argument with Napster, but fundamentally the notion of shutting down file sharing as such, I think, is wrong because there are legitimate uses there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think the the key thing here that Wayne and I try to get across in all our work on intellectual property is we we don't want the government to ban or mandate technological solutions to any of these any of these issues uh, as much as possible. Let the market sort these sorts of things out. Uh, let court cases be utilized as a way to adjudicate some of the disputes. But the bottom line is, with things like Napster and others, we prefer that the technology or the middleman not be shut down, but that you go after maybe some of the end users who are violating the copyrights. Well, well didn't didn't the um, we have the the spectacle now where the recording industry is is issuing subpoenas to grade schoolers and grandmothers for file swapping. Um, but but better better they go after maybe end users that are causing the problem than shut down the technologies themselves. Remember too, uh, also here the a lot of the issue with uh, with going after the, the grandmas and things like that has to do with the nature of these subpoenas. You don't want to give the record companies blanket access to your hard drive. Basically, you want the, if they suspect you of stealing, there needs to be a significant legal hurdle for them to violate your privacy. What's going on now with that aspect of the debate is it's essentially a privacy debate. But, um, but, but Adam is right. What we've tried to do, because there is, face it, there's disagreement among free market advocates over file sharing and its appropriateness. What we say is don't ban the technology. We're, in, in a free society, we don't want to ban the technology that allows file sharing. But on the other hand, there are approaches now to dealing with uh, the file sharing that w would mandate copy protection technologies. Now, we would also say don't mandate those kinds of technologies either, as Adam pointed out. The, uh, some of the broadcasters, for example, would like to see what's called a broadcast flag t mandated in, uh, in technologies to protect their content as it's distributed over the airwaves. We had something, we would, like, exactly. we had something like that years ago with the uh, video cassettes. And the, exactly. Yeah. So we wouldn't mandate a technology, we wouldn't ban the file sharing, but we also wouldn't mandate these solutions. I think they're emerging. What you're going to see is they'll emerge in the form of pricing, and you're seeing record companies 
lower the price of their songs and start to break albums up and sell you songs on an individual basis. And, and but put it this way. Put it this way. A a song that costs you 19 cents to download a legitimate certified virus-free copy of a song from a legitimate record company might be more attractive to you than risking your neck and your computer hard drive on a peer-to-peer network where you could be downloading a virus or you could be exposing yourself to a lawsuit. You mean supply and demand works on uh, with music too? I think it can. Imagine that. The key to this debate really comes down to the question of how do we get artists and creators paid? And that's really what intellectual property law has always been about in this country, sort of a utilitarian calculus about making sure we incentivize more artistic and scientific creation, but also not tilt that balance too far because we want to make sure that the larger community of users of those works of art and science are able to reuse them and, and, and profit from them or, or get knowledge from them. Uh, but again, we want to make sure the artists or creators get paid. That's the challenge, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have to lock ourselves into specific types of uh, government-mandated solutions or technological uh, heavy-handed regulations. So there are many ways to skin this cat, uh, but that principle needs to be at the heart of the, the debate. Let's move on to a minute to uh, some another electronic problem that couldn't have been foreseen uh, 20 years ago, and that's spam. Uh, it has all the appeal of rancid meat, and some folks think that Congress ought to ride to the rescue of our inboxes. Um, Wayne, who's pressuring Congress to do well, that? Wayne? The question is, is the market going to be able to deal with this, or is technology going to have to do it? And frankly, if the industry, the Internet industry, doesn't get together and solve this problem, government is going to step in and do something. Now, there are a number of bills uh, you know, the, certain things that you do online or do with spam ought to be illegal and ought to be gone after if you're using fraudulent headers or if you're harassing people and things of that sort. But fundamentally, at root, is the fact that it's free or cheap to send email and you don't have to identify yourself. So it's basically authentication and the pricing of uh, of sending an email. If, if consumers could charge a fraction of a cent to read an email from an unknown person, the problem would disappear. The question is, to deal with those issues of authentication of senders and pricing, is the market going to step up to the plate and solve the problem, or are we going to see some potentially misguided legislation coming out of Washington, which seems to be the way we're going? Yeah, Wayne's right. I mean, pricing is once again probably the the key solution to this sort of an issue, and a lot of market self-regulation or self-help mechanisms can help us solve these problems before we call on the government to do it for us. But I'll also point out once again here that there is a concern about speech and communications and the First Amendment. And one of the things that courts point out in cases involving things like spam or the the latest thing, the do not call list, is that we have to be very careful about willy-nilly banning certain types of commercial communications, even when they're commercial in nature. Some people like to draw distinctions between political speech and charitable speech or whatever else. But to me, speech is speech is speech, and it's all important. And just because you're a corporation doesn't mean you have no free speech rights. Uh, corporations nothing more than a collection of individuals with speech rights. So to me, I'm very concerned about government coming in and in, in a prior restraint sort of way telling us what forms of speech are legitimate and not legitimate on commercial networks. Uh, it's funny. We talk about free speech on this and the, the the line that gets thrown up all the time is, well, free speech is always uh, has some restrictions on it. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, you can, and I think you have a duty to do so if the theater's on fire, but, but the government doesn't come in and cut out your tongue, so you won't be able to... Uh, well, that's right, and the question is, is, is there an analogy there that works with regards to unsolicited commercial email? You, you think about it, you, you know, what are, what are 
people doing online when they send us spam? They're trying to solicit our business. They're trying to market us a better product. Now, some of these products are silly or stupid, but the fact of the matter is there could be worse things like yelling fire in a crowded theater. And I don't think that it's a proper analogy here to say they're the same. I think there is a very important role for commercial speech in this country uh, in terms of soliciting business and providing consumers with information that they don't currently have. One final point I make on the spam front, pricing is part of the solution, but also contracts. Currently, a lot of companies, uh, Internet service providers like AOL and others, have written into their contracts how many sorts of emails certain consumers can send or put on, the, uh, on their networks in a given day. And so a lot of this can be self-policed or self-regulated. And if a certain user is breaking an Internet service provider contract or bombarding others with messages on, on a specific private network, then let those private carriers handle this through a contractual mechanism. It's better, again, than calling in the government to solve the problem yeah, for us. Ironically, in some ways, legislation on spam could make things worse in a sense because if you have legislation like, for example, not necessarily picking on this specifically, but Conrad Burns's Can Spam Act, it sets up guidelines that advertisers would have to use. You know, you'd have to put ADV for advertisement in the subject line. You know, you'd have to jump through a few hoops and then send, then you could send the email. But that raises a question. What if I'm an Internet service provider and I don't want to send your email for you, even if you do meet those federal guidelines? So, you know, that, the Can Spam Act has been uh, ridiculed in some fronts, saying that what it really means is that you can spam. It gives an opening for people to send uh, send email out. So you have to be very careful. It's another problem with legislation. You set, you intervene in what the marketplace and consumers and businesses are ultimately going to work out, and you end up making it more impossible or more difficult to solve your problem. What about, um, while we're talking about the government and the Internet, what about...